Good morning and hello. My name is Ash. Um, it's my privilege to be speaking to you guys today from the Bible. Now, guys, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, we are in the season of Advent at the moment. And uh, I wonder what Advent means for you. For some of us, Advent might mean that it's time to break into that chocolate-filled calendar that you've been sort of eyeing up for the past couple of weeks, but not had a chance to as yet. For others, Advent might mean that that shopping that you had planned to do, like way back in October, now really, really, really is the time. We are in countdown mode. But, you know, for, for, for many people, Advent is a little bit more significant than chocolate-filled calendars and shopping. Now, I like to think of Advent as a bit of a, a looking back and a looking forward. Well, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, I suppose at Advent, what happens is we look back to a time when the Hebrews, so the Jewish people, anticipated or looked forward to a Messiah, a promised perfect king, one who would one day lead them into peace, security, and prosperity. The people had literally put their, their hopes and their dreams and their prayers on this amazing perfect king who would one day come and make everything perfect. And what happens at Advent is we, in some senses, we go back with them and we anticipate with them this amazing, glorious, fantastic king, and in particular, his birth. The name of that king is Jesus. And he is not only the king for the Hebrews, the Jewish people, but in fact, he is the king for all mankind. At his birth, there was an angel who said these words, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. So in fact, this king wasn't just for a particular group of people in the Middle East. He was, in fact, to be the king for all of humanity. But I just wonder, what is it that your friends and family would say about Jesus. I'm sure there'd be a whole variety of views about him. But I do believe that by and large, the general understanding among most people would be that Jesus was a real-life historical figure. So just like a, a Julius Caesar, or maybe a Cleopatra, or maybe in more kind of modern terms, I'm thinking a Kanye West or a Lady Gaga, like an actual real-life person that you could have pointed at and touched, someone who walked and ate and slept. But I think that the difference for us would come in terms of our understanding of his identity, who he is and what he is like. Now, for the church, and when I say church, I don't just mean this church, but I mean the the, the people who have followed Jesus across the world and throughout the, the generations, for the church, central to our faith is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And we're going to be thinking about that this morning. We're going to be thinking of Jesus as the supreme Son of God. And we're going to be doing that by looking at a letter written in the Bible to some Hebrew Christians. Now, the Bible is full of different types of writing, different genres, one of which is letter. And this particular letter was written to Hebrew Christians. So you know, these people were um, socially and ethnically Jewish. 
They had then put their trust or their faith in Jesus. They became Christians. And these Hebrews were in, they were in a bit of a minority. So whereas they believed Jesus to be the Son of God, that wasn't the general view in the wider culture that they were a part of. And this letter was written really for these guys to ensure that their view of Jesus wasn't overly shaped by the wider culture. They didn't just think and believe what everyone else thought and believed about Jesus. Now, I'm aware that, you know, in a room of this size, um, there won't be many of us um, from a, a kind of a Hebrew origin, and not everyone in this room will be a follower of Jesus. But I would say that, you know, whatever our origin, whatever we currently think or feel about Jesus, the words that we are going to read will be beneficial for all of us. And looking at the passage, I think that the writer has two aims in mind with his words. The first is to help us to see Jesus more clearly as the Son of God. And the second, having seen him more clearly as the Son of God, it is to put more of our confidence or more of our weight on him as the Son of God, to put more trust in him. So we're going to read those words. Well, I'm going to read those words on our behalf. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through to 4. It says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Wonderful. Now, um, I, I don't tend to watch too much TV, but there are one or, one or two things I like and enjoy. And, and recently, I've really got into the Netflix series called the Crown. Is anyone bold enough just to stick their hand up to indicate whether they have seen The Crown or not? Okay, so I'm, I'm in good company here. I'm in good company. Um, I won't tell you how long it took Jess and I to work through the most recent series, but let's just say it didn't take very long. Okay, we really, really enjoyed it. And um, I, I find the whole series fascinating. I've got to be honest. It's a, it's a fictional series. It's about Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It's about her life and it's about the family. Um, I'm absolutely engrossed by it. And I was reflecting recently, what is it about this series that, that draws me in and draws other people in? And I think it's because it gives us a little bit of an insight into our queen. Now, obviously, this is fictional, so I'm not going to take everything that I see as, as being absolutely true, but I'm sure it's actually based in reality, and it just gives us a little bit of an insight into what our queen is like, what she thinks, what she feels, and in particular, I really enjoyed those, the, the scenarios, the scenes where uh, the queen is sitting for her weekly meeting with the prime minister. I, that, for me, that is the, the best bit of the entire series, and it makes me think, I would love to be a fly on the wall in those circumstances. Because in those meetings, you, you, you really get a sense of what the Queen 
thinks. And it makes me think, well, how did she feel about um, the Olympic Games in London in 2012? Or the Iraq War in the early 2000s? Or even the, the current situation with Brexit? What does our Queen think? How does she feel? And some of you guys might be thinking, look, you know, Ashley, sort yourself out. It is just a program. But I say that to make a really serious point. In the passage, first sentence in, we read these two words, God spoke. Now, I'm really amazed to get anything of an inkling of what this fictional queen thinks and feels about the world. And I've just been told here that the creator of the universe, the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, has actually spoken, has actually revealed himself, has actually made himself known in a way that people like you and me can understand. That ought to do something to us. Honestly, that ought to make us shudder. We're living at a time when people are trying to make sense of, of the world. What's going on? What direction are we taking? How ought we to live? Well, we've just been told that there is a God who speaks. If we have a God who speaks, surely we would want to know what that God says. God has spoken to humanity. How did he speak? Well, we are told in the passage that God spoke by the prophets. The prophets were his spokespeople, his representatives. They were people who spoke on God's behalf. We are told that this happened over a course of time. In fact, it happened over many centuries. God spoke to different prophets at different times. And clearly, God had a lot to say. And if you're not convinced that God had a lot to say, I would encourage you to pick up a Bible and begin to work your way through it, okay? God has an awful lot to say to humanity. He's not talking to the, you know, the, the rocks or the birds. He is talking to humanity. He's talking to you and me. So God spoke by the prophets. He spoke over a period of time, but he also spoke in different ways. If you were to flick through the Bible, you, you might find yourself stumbling on the, the, the book of Daniel. Daniel, God spoke to Daniel through dreams. You'd also meet in the Bible as someone called Ezekiel. Ezekiel had amazingly glorious and grand visions of God. You could even look at Job. Job is basically an extended conversation between Job, some of his friends, and God. So God spoke at many times and in various ways through the prophets. And God speaking, his revelation is a, is a little bit like a puzzle. Now, you need to track with me on this one. When I say puzzle, I'm not talking about like a, a thousand-piece um, thousand puzzle of like the French Riviera. When I say puzzle, I'm, I'm talking like more the kind of puzzle that my son Evan is currently working on. His puzzles generally tend to be like oh, three, four, five pieces. They're not the most complicated puzzles in the world. But here's my point. With Evan's puzzle, so for example, he's got one of a cow. Each of the individual pieces actually makes sense by itself. So one piece you'll get like the cow's head, another piece you might get the, the, the cow's udder, Another piece might be like the middle section of the cow. Another piece might be, I don't know, the sun in the background. Each individual piece is like a picture in its own right. But you put the picture pieces, the puzzle pieces together, and you get something so much better than the individual. 
That's a little bit like God's revelation through the prophets. Each of them is kind of standalone. You get a bit of an insight into God and what he is like, how he feels. So you would read, for example, uh, the prophet Jonah, and you realize that God is gracious. God is one who loves people who don't necessarily love him. So that's a picture in its own right. But the fascinating thing is that these prophets, these, these people that God spoke to and through over centuries, there was actually a consistent theme running through all of them. And that consistent theme was, in fact, Jesus. They were ultimately pointing to a bigger, bolder, more exciting picture, and that was one of this amazing king who would come, and his name is Jesus. The writer in the passage wants us to see that a significant gear change has occurred. He wants us to see that at a decisive point in history, we went from like puzzle pieces to the full and complete picture. We went from you know, the, the movie trailers to the, the full-on lights, camera, action, blockbuster film. We went from little tasters in a restaurant to the full-blown three-course meal. He wants us to see that actually Whereas in the past God spoke by the prophets, in these last days he has spoken by his son, his living, breathing, three-dimensional son, one that you could actually walk up to, one that you could point at and actually poke, okay? Real-life, living person. God has spoken by his son. Now, if it was amazing that God spoke at all, how much more so that God has now spoken by his son? No longer partial revelation, no longer a little bit here, a little bit there, but fully and completely in one person, Jesus. And because the writer wants us to feel the full weight of this, he wants us to feel, he wants us to recognize that what we have now is so much better than what went on before, he lists for us five credentials of Jesus as a supreme son of God. He wants to give us five things that we can hang a little bit more of our confidence on. And we're going to work through those five things together. Number one, the son is the heir of all things. An heir is someone who will ultimately inherit. The son will inherit everything. And because he will inherit everything, it therefore follows that everything exists for him. And if everything exists for him, he has authority over everything. The supreme son of God has authority over all things. We're, we're obviously approaching uh, another general election. And, you know, when we think about our political leaders or, or leaders generally, oftentimes, maybe even subconsciously, we're asking, I think, two questions in our minds about our leaders. First question, does this person know what they're talking about? Second question, do they have the will and the power to do anything about it? Because Jesus is the heir of all things, because Jesus has authority over all things, the answer to those two questions is always yes. No matter what it is, whether it is um, Brexit or anxiety or gender and sexuality, whether it is what we do with our money, whether it is the environment and ecology, the answer is yes. He absolutely knows what he's talking about and he has the will and the power to do something about it because Jesus has skin in the game, whatever it is. He is the heir of all things. 
So Jesus is the heir of all things. He has also created all things. You know, Jesus has been around for eternity. Um, so my wife, Jess, and I, we arrived in Bristol in the summer of 2016. And at that point, the, the George family was Ashley George and Jess George. But eventually that changed. There was an addition to the George family. Evan George came onto the scene. He became our son. But, you know, there was a particular point in time when he was not our son because he didn't exist. So he went from not being our son to being our son, which we're very happy about. But, you know, the, the, the dynamic between the Son of God and God the Father isn't actually the same. There was no point that Jesus became the Son of God because he has always existed. He has existed in eternity with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. And whatever you think or feel about the, the, the book of Genesis and you know, the way that it's written and what it means, Genesis and the rest of the Bible is really clear that Jesus was there right from the start. So alongside God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he created all things. It wasn't that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit made the stuff and then the Son came onto the scene and it was kind of offered, here is your inheritance one day. No, he was right there from the start. So the Son is the heir of all things and the Son created all things. Thirdly, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Now, God's glory is very difficult to describe. It's like His, his weightiness or His magnificent splendor. It's, it's what I said to the guys um, up in Bradley Stoke. It's like God's, basically, it's God's show-offness. That's probably the best way that I can describe it anyway. You know, when we encounter magnificent things, we are often left without words, or we struggle to put the words together to describe what it is that we are seeing or experiencing. So I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I take it on good authority. Those who have been often say they are left speechless. They don't know what to say. It's amazing, it's, it's glorious, it's full of grandeur. They're trying to find these words, but they can't quite describe what they are thinking and what they are feeling. That's one example of glory. But let's look together at an example of God's glory. So I talked about the prophets earlier on. Let's read these words from Ezekiel, who is talking about God's glory. This is from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 25 through to 28. He says this, Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. God's glory causes us to go wow and bow down in reverence. We are aware that there is a huge difference between us. When we recognize God's glory, there is no boasting on our behalf. We are not impressed by ourselves. We are not impressed by anything else. We are impressed only by Him. 
Because God's glory enables us to recognize that we are truly in the presence of greatness. And you know, when, when Ezekiel wrote those words, he talks about what he was describing. Ezekiel was actually talking about Jesus. Kind of made that really, really clear. And my encouragement actually is there are many such passages in, in the Bible that talk about God's glory. It's prophets trying to put words together to describe what they're seeing, but they're, they're, they're struggling. There are many similar passages. Can I encourage you, whenever you encounter one of those passages, just in your mind, be reminded, be thinking, this person is talking about Jesus. Okay, so the sun is the radiance of God's glory. This is the one that we are thinking about. Well, as you approach Christmas and, you know, we're thinking about celebrations there, this, we're thinking about a baby in a manger, absolutely. But the baby in a manger and what we've just read in Ezekiel, okay, same person, same person. Okay, so the sun is the uh, heir of all things. The sun created all things. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun, fourthly, is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, I've, I've, I've talked to quite a few people over the years who would consider the Bible to be a book about two gods. So some people would say, well, you've got the, the God of the Old Testament on the one hand, a God who is often angry and full of judgment and just wanting to sort people out. And then on the other hand, you've got the, the, the God of the New Testament. That's Jesus who is, you know, nice and kind and heals people and looks after people. Two parts of the Bible, two separate gods. Um, I would like to assert to you today that the Bible tells a very different story. Because in the Bible, we see that Jesus actually fully affirms the Old Testament. He fully affirms all of the words of the prophets. He doesn't shy away. He's actually not, he's not, he's not afraid of any of those words. He, he owns them for himself. He says, I, I, I agree, I subscribe, I sign up. Those are my words. I'm fully there. In fact, he says that I have not come to do away with the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is constantly talking about doing the Father's will and loving the Father and showing the Father. On the other side, the Father, God the Father says this, he says, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We do not have two things going on, okay? Both Father and Son are singing from exactly the same hymn sheet. You know, it's interesting, as a, um, some of you in this, in this room will be uh, parents, will probably have a lot more experience of this than, than Jess and I, but you probably will have had a scenario where one of your children approaches you and asks for something. Uh, it could be, you know, it could be a biscuit, it could be to stay up a little bit later, it could be for like a, a PlayStation 4, it could be for a car, I don't know what it is. They might ask you for something, and being a loving and kind parent, occasionally you have to say no, or maybe not yet. For some kids at this point, their tactic is, okay, I've, 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 I've been given the no, I'm going to go to another adult and ask exactly the same question. Maybe I'm going to get a different response. Sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, I'd like to tell us all today that there is no kind of dynamic like that with God the Father and God the Son. Okay, so what, what Jesus says is exactly what God the Father would say. They're singing from exactly the same hymn sheet. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. It's not like you're getting kind of 95%, it's like, oh, he's like him, but he's not quite. You're not getting 95% of God the Father. You are getting the full 
package, the absolute full package. Okay, so the sun is the heir of all things. The sun has created all things. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the exact imprint of God's nature. Fifthly, the sun sustains all things by his powerful word. Let's just think for a few moments about how Jesus uses his words. There's a scenario in the Bible where Jesus and his followers, his, his disciples, his, his little team, his friends, uh, they're in a boat together. And most of his guys, they're experienced fishermen. Um, so they're, they're used to being on the seas. They're comfortable and confident swimmers, not like me. Um, and they're out on the seas. And Jesus is in the back. It's been a very long day. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. So Jesus is in the back, and he is sleeping. Now, the boat on the sea, something happens. There's a storm that begins to develop. And the storm is clearly a bad storm because these really experienced fishermen start to freak out, basically. They don't know what to do. They're very scared. They're, in fact, scared for their lives. So they go to the back. They get Jesus. They, they kind of shake him and say, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to drown? Do something. What does Jesus do? What would you do in that scenario? Well, what Jesus does is he stands up and he actually speaks to the storm. And the wind and the waves immediately calm. The, like the, the created order has to obey the words of the Son of God. He has spoken. The wind and the waves have to obey. There's another scenario in the Bible where um, Jesus had a really good friend called Lazarus. Lazarus sadly died. Word came to Jesus. A few days later, Jesus arrived in the town. He met with Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. And eventually, they went into where Lazarus's body was laid. And Jesus does something interesting. He speaks to his dead friend, Lazarus. He speaks and says, Lazarus, come forth. This is to his dead friend, okay? Well, what does Lazarus's body do? Lazarus's body has to come back to life because the Son of God has spoken. Therefore, the body has to obey. And I... And I, I, I I use those examples to drive this thing home to us that God's words are powerful. Why is it that the sun came up today? Now, I know that there are good scientific reasons. I'm sure there are probably some scientists in the room. I did a degree in chemistry. There are probably good, there are good scientific reasons why the sun came up today. But I would put it to you that there is a more significant reason why the sun came up, and that is because the Son of God told it to come up. You see, the Son of God actually spoke the laws of science into being, and he continues to uphold them by his words. So the very fact that I am stood here, and I'm not like a pile of mush, is due to Jesus like literally holding me together by his words. And I think that's something that we really need to grasp hold of. You know, there's been a lot, lot of talk recently about just uncertainty in life, not just in this nation, but across the world. Where, where is the world going? What is happening to us? And a lot of that we, we, we don't know. We don't have a great deal of clarity. But can I, can I say to you, can I encourage you today, one thing that I do know to be true is that the sun upholds all things, the entire universe, by his words. My son, Evan, he, um, he, he doesn't know many songs yet. He doesn't know much of his Bible yet. But there's one song that he does know that, that Jess has taught him, and that is, Our God is a great big God. 
and he holds us and the entire universe in his hands. And it makes me think, wow, if he didn't like, learn any more Christian songs or any more of the Bible, that's pretty good theology, actually. That's, that is, honestly, that is life-changing. That is life-changing. And I would encourage all of us to, to, to live with that, live with that reality, ponder that. He upholds all things by his powerful words. Okay, so the writer has laid out for us five stunning credentials of Jesus as the Son of God. And these have mainly about, been about who Jesus is. And this is kind of where I'm coming into, coming into land. But the writer goes on to say something more. And he goes on to tell us that this Son has done something that only the Son of God could do. We are told in the passage that he has made purification for sins. Which begs the question, what are sins... And why is it that only Jesus could do anything about them? Well, sins are the ways that we turn away from God. These are the ways that we, in fact, try to put ourselves in His place. The ways at times that we want to decide for ourselves what is right or wrong, what is good or bad, the way that things should or shouldn't be done. And if you think about it, it's basically like, it's sort of like declaring war on God. It's trying to like mount a coup and try to topple Him from His position so we could be on that throne. You know, our perfect God must uphold justice, which in reality would mean separation from Him. Separation from Him and His goodness and His blessing and His protection, and also punishment for our wrongdoing. And you know, we, we understand usually in, in legal context that like how the severity of the crime affects a sentence. So for some things you might be given a, just a warning, other things it's a fine or community service, and that could work its way all the way up to you know, a life sentence in prison. Often how bad the crime is determines the sentence. But you know, in this case, thinking about sins, the, the, the crime couldn't actually be worse. And it's not specifically about what we've done or what we do, but the key thing is about who the crime has been committed against, a perfect, loving, kind, and generous God. And in reality, the sentence is tough. It is, in fact, everlasting punishment. But there is good news. And the good news is that, you know, Jesus is, is fully and completely God. He is also fully human. And like God, he is perfectly holy. He has no sentence of his, his own to serve. There, there are no charges against him. Yeah, I mean, you, there were, there's no evidence against him. He is perfectly holy. But Jesus has also joined himself to humanity, and that's part of what we celebrate at Christmas. Because he's joined himself to humanity, he is therefore able to represent us as humanity and take on himself the punishment that should rightly be on me and on you. And that's exactly what he did. On a cross, dying a horrendous death with nails through his hands and through his feet, he suffered and he died. He suffered and he died for good reason. He suffered and he died ultimately for humanity. And you know, we know that justice was served for this reason. He died. Three days later, he came back to life, and he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, and he is now sat there, which begs the question, why is he sat? Why does anyone sit down? We sit down because we've done what we've needed to do. When Jesus died on that cross, and when he came back to life, 
he did it. He served the sentence on our behalf. He's not sort of sat there, but sometimes parents do this, where it's like you're trying to be quite chilled with your kids, and you think, like, oh, my kid's going to punch the other one, but I'm, like, I'm trying to be chilled, but I've got to be sort of crouched to kind of dive in there or sort the situation out. Jesus isn't in that kind of crouched position thinking, oh, what are these guys going to do next? Am I going to have to dive in again? He is, he's like Sam. He's just chilled out, you know, hands crossed and legs up. He is, he's done it. He has absolutely done it once and for all. He has sacrificed once and for all, so nobody needs to suffer that punishment. But why is he still sat? Why hasn't he come back? Why is, it, why is the world in the state that it is? And I believe that there are two good reasons for that. Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he's doing, he's doing two things at the moment. And both of those things are are an offer that he makes to humanity. The offer is this. Firstly, listen to me. He's saying to humanity, I'm a son of God. I have all authority. I'm for you. I've got skin in the game. Listen to me. The second thing he says is, put your trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins and the right to enter the family of God. You know, in the a, in a, in a first circumstance, Jesus, the Son of God, came to represent God, to speak on, our, on God's behalf, to show us what God is like. That was like stage one. Stage two was about not just telling us about God, but actually bringing us to a place where the barrier between us and God could be removed, and we could come into loving, glorious, peaceful relationship with God the Father. That's what he was doing. And that's the offer that goes out to all of us today. That is the offer that goes out to humanity. That, in fact, you know, we, we talked about the, the new site in Fishponds. That's the reason why, as a church, we are going for another site. We want to make that offer and declare that offer to even more people than we do at the moment because we believe it is, in fact, the most important thing in the world. It is an offer for all of us. I'd like to invite the the, uh, musicians to, um, if they're out there somewhere, to maybe pop back up onto the stage. And maybe we could, um, I know time is running away from us, but maybe we could could end with one final song. And just just before we do, I would love to pray for us. I said at the start that really I think the intention of the writer and certainly my heart and my prayer has been that we would see Jesus more clearly as the Son of God and put more of our confidence, more of our weight on Him. And that's, that's what I believe for all of us. I'm going to pray into that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to each and every one of us. Thank you that you have made yourself known. You've not hidden yourself in a corner, but you have been so gracious and kind to make yourself known to little people like us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself. Thank you that you've given us your Bible. Thank you that this country is full of Bibles. Father, we recognize it in so much of the world to even have one in our possession would be illegal, would put us under the threat of, threat of death. But Lord, you have given us your words and you've given us so much more. You've given us your glorious Son. So, Father, as we approach this Christmas period, I pray that in our hearts, Lord God, that we would know that you have given us the best gift ever in giving us your Son, 
There is nothing left in your storehouse. There's no better gift out there that we could be waiting for or expecting. You've given us your very best. And I pray, Father God, that our hearts would sing with joy and would sing with delight. Lord, would you do a deep work in us that we would listen. We would listen to Jesus. That we would lean on him. That we would trust in him. That we'd have confidence in him as that perfect, supreme son of God who is the king of the universe. Amen.